Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We've all learned at a, at, a, at a personal level is that we are fundamentally social beings, is that being connected to other people is something that is valuable. And that when when we are unable to do that, we're able, able to see that, Chris, you know, absolute with absolute clarity, being separated from family and friends, being unable to socialize, being unable to network, being all the things that that actually matter um, on a day to day basis are really important too. Uh, so I think there'll be some legacies from this. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. If you're a LinkedIn user, I welcome you to connect with me by searching for Mike Davis and also by following Humans of Purpose to get fast access to all our latest episodes and updates. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Andrew Weir. Andrew is a regular on Humans of Purpose and wears a couple of hats. He's the City Economist at the City of Melbourne. He's a terrific author who tackles only the most challenging and fascinating subjects, and he's also a non-executive director at the ARDOC. I've always admired Andrew's ability to perform across a range of fields at a consistently high level. It's also rare to spend time with a public servant who's able to produce top-quality books, participate in not-for-profit boards, and more beyond his amazing day job at the City of Melbourne. Andrew's latest book is on the most relevant topic of the day, recovery. How can we create a better, brighter future after a crisis? In recovery, Andrew asks, as we emerge from COVID-19, the health and economic crisis, what can we learn from other recoveries? Through interviews with experts, policymakers and community leaders, Andrew examines past recoveries, explores what went well and what we should do differently and what lessons might we learn for the recovery ahead of us. Recovery is available now where all good books are sold, or you can just head online and order directly from the publisher, Black Ink Books. There's a link in our show notes. The good folk at Black Ink Books will include free shipping too. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew as much as I did. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast, mate. How are you? G'day, Mike. Really good to be here. Yeah. Um, it, it's been a little while. We recorded together probably, was it about a year or two ago? Yeah, it's- about the start of the pandemic, I think it was. Um, yeah, early in 2020. It's probably about the time when um, I got back from holidays, uh, you know, ski trip and just thought that like, like, I remember thinking 2020 is going to be the best year of my life. The numbers are symmetrical. Everything's looking up. And then like a sledgehammer to the face, uh, that that uh, dream was broken. <laughs> yeah, what an incredible experience we've all been through and it's still going through. It's, um, it's you, you have to think it's, it's one that we're going to be telling our grandkids about. <laughs> we're in a very strange moment in time, and I, I sometimes think it's a bit like um, Citizen Kane. We're in that kind of snowflake, um, like that little crystal dome, and we're, we're kind of suspended animation for a, a couple of years, and then maybe we'll just go back into normal reality. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I think um, we're rich. I think we're in the third act at the moment. Is my reading? We're we're at the beginning of the end. Uh, what that end looks like. Not entirely clear yet, but um, I'm increasingly optimistic that we've got a bit of a bright future ahead of us, I think. Yeah, nice. Well, look, I- I'm keen to get into um, 
all the points that I think we've, we've chatted about previously about your new book, which is incredibly exciting, Recovery, which has just come out. But I think before we do that, I mean, I've always been really curious about your kind of career um, path and how you've been able to balance doing, you know, really um, being a fantastic emerging author who's, who's written now a couple of books and also being a fairly senior director at the City of Melbourne. How does that all kind of work for you um, doing both? Is it just kind of day shift and night shift or do they kind of just one help you be better at the other? How does that complementary kind of um, focus work for you? Yeah, it is a real uh, balancing act, Mike. And sometimes if I feel like I am, you know, high up on a tightrope somewhere <laughs> um, with the ability to fall at any moment. But I think they do complement each other in a funny sort of way. Um, it's necessary to keep necessary to keep them separate, but they also reinforce each other in a really positive way. I think. I have to remind myself, um, and I am do this very consciously, that when I'm when I'm writing a book or speaking publicly, I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer, my day job. Um, I'm I can't represent myself as doing that. I'd be very very careful to stay away from uh, party politics or anything that's uh, um, weighing in on that front, um, and uh, and really to particularly focus less on my opinions and more on um, assembling the the evidence um, of best practice from around the world, which uh, is useful um, in informing public policy debate around the place and I think adds value to everyone. And it, it may or may not be directly relevant to my work, but I think I've become a better public servant by virtue of the fact that I've done this work. I've, I've been, I think, the curiosity that I that I show um, by doing this work, the additional perspectives that it brings, means I think I end up going in, into my day job, you know, in a, in a far stronger position, even if it's not directly always relevant. Um, it is a day job, night job piece, though. I, I make sure I'm never on the um, on the company payroll when I'm doing the work, and um, and it's uh, yeah. So you separate it out in that sense, but. But the ideas definitely bleed across. I, you know, pick up inspiration at work, and then I bring inspiration back to work from from the work that I do separately. That's super interesting. It sort of seems like some people would say, "Okay, conflict of interest." It's more a case of alignment of interest, which is where you can really thrive. Yeah, I think so. Like I'm at I'm at City of Melbourne at the moment, and uh, my work at the moment in writing. You know, my day job focuses on working through. The impacts of COVID on the city, on the city economy in particular. Um, my book is all about, and the work I've done on the book is all about learning from past recoveries and 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 how that getting some insight into how we, how that might shape our recovery ahead of us. And so they're complementary; they reinforce each other, um, not but in but in slightly different ways. And I think um, it's you know it's no secret that I work at the city of Melbourne. Um, but I'm not writing on behalf of the city of Melbourne, and I'm. Um, but at the same time, city of Melbourne, where I work, is 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 an ex- bit of an exemplar in this space too. So I do take ex- take inspiration from um, from my work. So it is a it's a definitely a fine finely balanced uh, juggling act there. 
Mike, to mix my metaphors totally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you've summed it up quite well. Um, before we get into the the meat of the conversation, how are you coping with with COVID and persistent lockdown that sort of feels a bit never ending? And also, you've got four kids at home, uh, at the dinner table with you each night. That sounds absolutely crazy. How is that going? It's not just the dinner table each night, Mark. It's the it's the dinner table during the day doing the schoolwork as well. Um, so it's um, slightly crazy. It's look, it's a it's a strange time, and we're all grappling with it in different ways. I mean, we're I'm locked up at home with with you know with children who I love dearly um, and a family. You know, and we all get along reasonably well, but it's pretty intense nonetheless. We're separated from my parents and my wife's parents and it's it's that separation from family is challenging at one level you know we're all doing really well at the other level we're not exactly thriving and we're and we're, and, and our lives are sort of suspended in one at, at a, suspended in a way i think uh i think i'm not unique in in that front and all of us to some extent i don't think i don't think i've met anyone who's particularly thriving at the moment and yeah. well well while uh, not all of us exhibit, you know, clinical levels of depression or anxiety, there are plenty that do, and those that and those that aren't uh, are still not at their best. I don't think, and um, we'll come out the other side of this, and we'll have to evaluate how things are how things are going. I think. Yeah, that's that's really well said. It's certainly some mixed experiences uh, for different people with different challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, your books received some rave reviews already and write-ups in uh, prominent publications, which is just wonderful to see as a reader of your, your previous works also. Um, I love talking about optimism. Um, I was a big fan of Stephen Pinker's books and uh, Hans Rosling and, and some of the authors who sort of talked a bit about what we've got to look forward to and how we're actually in quite a good place or the best place we've ever been as a as a um, society. I want to ask you, why should we feel optimistic about the future right now when things sort of seem like they're really bleak and, you know, quite depressing? Yeah. I think there's two parts to that answer. The first part is I think we need optimism. We need to feel optimistic in a sense. Um, you know, I don't know who said it, but there's that notion that you need three things to be happy. You need someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And I think we collectively need something to look forward to. Uh, we need the optimism that... Um, the prospect of a brighter future, it keeps us going, I think. So that serves as a real psychological function there. The other part to the answer is that there is a good precedent for um, for doing well after crises like this one. And whether you look back through the past at uh, recoveries from depression or war or um, natural disaster or, or uh, other pandemics, I mean, there's no shortage of precedents of cities of nations that have actually bounced back from crisis to go on to become better than they were before. And I take a lot of uh, hope um, and inspiration from, from those precedents. And that's what I've been spending my time, my, my early mornings and my late nights um, wading into. And I, it's been actually, uh, it, it, it can actually get a lot of inspiration out of actually delving into some of that and actually get some great insights into what might be in store for us ahead and and the choices that we're going to need to make to inform our recovery ahead i think and i think one one other dimension i think as we speak today we're spending a lot of time 
head down in the weeds of the tactical decisions about how we're going to get through the pandemic. We focus on daily case numbers, you know, on on vaccination rates, on hospitalizations. It's very tactical and lends itself to to conflict between people. but rather than a conversation about how we get through the pandemic, I, I think the question for us is, what do we do beyond the pandemic? What sort of nation do we want to be? Who do we want to become? And what and 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 what's our vision for the future? And that's the sort of conversation that we can have that 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 can elevate, that can unite and inspire and bring us all together. And I think we need to create room for that sort of conversation at the same time as we 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 uh, we get through the pandemic. So the, the message sounds like it's one of how do we build back better rather than focus on what's immediately in front of us that's going horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is, right. And that build back better uh, at one level is a great phrase and another another level it's sort of uh, fallen into cliche to some extent. Uh, but, the, but the notion of having a conversation about what we want to become after the pandemic, um, what is our vision for the future, I think is a really powerful means of... Uh, of lifting our gaze and and creating hope for the future, and the and the precedent is there to do that, and uh, that's the great thing about crises in a way they um they they make it they loosen everything up a little bit so that things that weren't possible before the crisis um, are perhaps possible after the crisis because everything's shaken up. It's it's um because things won't go back to the way they were before. Things will be different after the pandemic. The question for us is. In what way do we want them to be different? They're going to be different whether we like it or not. But the question for us is how do we how do we shape it to to ensure that we end up with it with with something that's conscious? Andrew, why why do you decide to write a book like this? Is it is it sort of just about um, wanting to keep yourself uh, hopeful and put down ideas that have served other societies or um, or countries well in in the grips of crisis, or is this something that sort of sets the stage for maybe a, a broader um, national or societal conversation about the things that matter most and what we should be doing to pave the way for a better future? Yeah, well, there are a couple of reasons why I write a book. One is to satisfy my own curiosity uh, to follow my own leads. I mean, it's it's uh, sort of thing I'd be doing whether I was writing a book or not. I, I suspect, and and the the discipline of sitting down and writing a book is a great way of structuring a line of thought. Um, but I think no one writes a book um, not to be read. I, w- I want my book to be read. But more so I want my I want, what I want those, the ideas in the book to is to go on to hopefully catalyse a bigger conversation uh, that may or may not involve me, but, it, but, but to provoke but the questions that are in the book I hope will provoke a bigger conversation that involves all of us in a conversation about the future that we want to create. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, just in terms of what you see as the biggest challenges that we need to tackle or that will be kind of um, on the radar moving forward or should be on the radar moving forward, you've listed things like climate change and inequality. Maybe if you can just make the case around why they're important right now for us to tackle. Um, It's probably quite obvious, but um, just I'm interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, well, clearly recovering from the pandemic is going to involve a lot of things that are are a specific response to the pandemic. We're going to have to grapple with things like mental health and consequences of family violence and economic, you know, economic impacts and lost learning and all the things that the pandemic has, you know, imposed upon us. Um, but at the same time as we're rec- we're recovering from the pandemic, there are 
big issues that predated the pandemic uh, that we're still going to have to grapple with as a nation that haven't gone away just because there's been a pandemic. We've uh, The coming decade will be the decade that we recover from the pandemic, but it is also the critical decade in which we're going to need to tackle climate change. Uh, you know, the Venn diagram of COVID recovery and decarbonisation is almost perfectly intersecting. Uh, we're going to, and so the question really is: is how do we frame our recovery uh, as as a recovery that's going to help us achieve a decarbonised future? Similarly, with uh, with inequality, it's a it's one of the the significant issues that Australia has been grappling with. I think one of Australia's significant weaknesses that it predated predated the pandemic. Um, and um, the pandemic has actually shown up the consequences of, un- of inequality in, in Australia. You only need to look at a map of Melbourne to see where the COVID cases are. And it, it's, it almost mirrors up perfectly a map uh, with a map of socioeconomic status. Um, and so we're going to have to grapple with inequality, the social, de- social determinants of health um, and as part of our recovery process, if we can actually use that to become a, a more equal society that leads to a better distribution of, of outcomes and benefits, then that's a good thing too, I think. So in a way, I mean, we're kind of talking about climate change, inequality, and the challenges of COVID-19 as sort of like a Venn diagram where all impact upon each other and cause significant effects where you're sort of seeing COVID born out and really um, like, uh, I suppose, unequal outcomes in terms of both vaccination and infection across um, across the, the state and other states also. You're also seeing um, climate change um, being it being a really influenced a great deal um, by inequality and vice versa. Mm. And then you've also got the challenge of um, COVID and climate change as well, uh, and that relationship too. Yeah, yeah. And the way you frame that there is all of them as challenges, and I don't disagree. But I would also probably um, flip it a little bit and talk about our recovery from COVID as a massive opportunity for us um, to reshape our future. And if we approach it in the right way, COVID recovery is a huge opportunity to make great inroads into challenges such as uh, climate change and inequality. And so the task for us is to realise the opportunity of our recovery. It's it's a once-in-a-generation opportunity to actually create the future we want, and and we really absolutely can't miss it. And now is the time to raise our ambition, I think. So this is going to involve um, a lot of powerful actors in society lifting their gaze a little bit to the horizon Mm. uh, and lifting their eyes up from the grassy floor in a way of just balancing the budget every year and um, just doing what needs to be done to keep the economy ticking along. So we're asking some um, bigger questions about what matters. What do you think we've learned during the pandemic about what matters and what's important for people? Yeah, we've we've learned. I think we've learned quite a lot during the pandemic, haven't we? I mean, we've at an individual level, at a national level, at an international level. I mean, firstly, I think we've learned, and in no particular order, actually, I think we've learned that we're all interconnected. We're all connected. Is that what happens in another part of the world impacts what happens here? Um, that what uh, the the health outcomes in one particular group in our society impact health outcomes in a 
another part of society so that we um, that health is a public concern, it's not a private concern. We've learned that good government matters. It's actually in a time of a pandemic, it's actually quite handy to have a functional government. Um, we've actually we've observed that in Australia. I think for the most part, our government system has been functional, at least when compared to looking around the world at other places. We've seen, you know, what's happened earlier in the pandemic in in the US and UK um, and and a whole range of other countries where where governments that are less functional than ours um, did, you know, didn't uh, respond to the pandemic in a way that we perhaps would have been happy with. And uh, good government matters. Um, we've learnt, I think that. I think one thing that we've we've all learned at a, at a at a personal level is that we are fundamentally social beings. Is that being connected to other people is something that is valuable, and that when when we are unable to do that, we're able, able to see that you know absolute with absolute clarity. Being separated from family and friends, being unable to socialize, being unable to network, being all the things that that actually matter um, on a day to day basis. Are really important too. Uh, so I think there'll be some legacies from this. And and what I what I sort of observed with almost every crisis that I, and every recovery that I investigated is there were profound social changes that that are uh, that flowed from from the crisis. And it's not immediately clear um, what they are. It's only sometimes only years later that that become apparent. Whether that be Profound changes to gender relations after the after the Spanish flu, and or you know, or um, you know, uh, massive economic opportunities that emerge after war, or you know, there, there are all sorts of profound shifts that that emerge from a from a crisis, and we'll see some some of those uh, in Australia. the The outcome, the political outcomes that emerge from the global global financial crisis, they produced phenomena such as Donald Trump and Brexit. You know, and oh be god. Pl- yeah. You're scaring the crap out of me now, Andrew. Yeah, but there's but there's political consequences, social consequences. There's there'll be all sorts of consequences that we can't properly anticipate yet. Mm. Um, and uh, most of those will be good, frankly. Um, uh, but it's important that we we do tackle, you know, we do we do proactively try and shape our future so that we can avoid the bad consequences too. I think one thing you touched on, I mean, I want, to, I want to raise two things. One thing is social isolation and our need for social connectedness. I, I mm. certainly feel that myself, my community, my peers, my colleagues are all craving social interaction so badly. I mean, I know for myself um, that walk in the morning or the afternoon to go past the coffee shop, um, I just look forward to seeing who's walking on the street and who's outside the coffee shop. I don't know any of them, but just being around other people for me is a giant thrill. Um, so I think people are just sort of, um, really excited to reconnecting with, with other people. And I think we'll value relationships in a, in a whole new way once uh, we get back to normal. I think the other thing is like the changed nature of the work, um, and home life. Um, now that people are finding that it's so easy to work from home and, um, the city's been, you know, very much vacated by most, most workers, um, it, it makes you think about, you know, are we going to move to a system of uh, regional hubs where people just kind of work in their own communities and live in their own communities? And then you've got questions around what is that? Um, how do you draw the line between when I'm on the clock and when I'm off the clock as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of points there, I think. 
after the Spanish flu in 1918-19, um, the decade after that was a phenomenal decade where people just went out and partied for a decade, and um, and and um, and it was a phenomenally social decade. And and the Roaring Twenties of of the 1920s after the Spanish flu was a, was a, a social phenomenon, and um, and it remains to be seen whether that's ahead of us or whether we you know, too comfortable in our tracky dacks, you know, um, and, and remain cocooned at home, I think. But um, I, I wager that we're going to get out and be social again. What you've identified, though, with work, I think is one of those, is clearly one of those domains that we'll probably see changing. It's almost certain. How it will settle, though, is, I think, yet to be seen. Is And I'm not entirely clear what it will, what it will mean for our central cities, what it will mean for how how we end up working. I'm fairly confident that we'll need a degree of face-to-face interaction in our work. We need to come together to network, to collaborate, you know, workshop, bump into each other in coffee shops and corridors, and that's going to be really, really important, and that's really what's made cities function the way they are. Um, but the question is exactly how much are we going to also work from home when we need to do our quiet time and all that sort of thing, and that, and that will then f- flow through into consequential impacts on cities too. The relationship between the suburbs and the central city, the relationship between cities and regions, um, I think all of that's still to shake out a little bit. And how long do you think it will be before we can see grown men wearing jeans again and not tracksuit pants? <laughs> I don't know, Mike. I still, I'm still of the belief that tracksuit pants shouldn't be seen outside, unless, <laughs> unless you're exercising. That's the only exception. <laughs> well, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Um, uh, so I'm- <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on, you talk a bit about sort of the role that community is going to need to play in the recovery ahead. I mean, first of all, I've been thinking, who is the community now? Um, mm. Because we're, we're kind of, in a way, more and more divided um, than ever. And, and I think when we think about who is our community, you know, if, if you asked me probably, you know, a year or two ago, I'd say, well, look, I live in Elstonwick. I work in South Melbourne. Um, these are my friends. This is where I kind of spend my time. These are the circles I move in. What do you mean about when you say community now and w- what would the role of that community be in the recovery? Yeah, that is a really fantastic question. I mean, because you can tackle that in a number of different ways. And it's interesting looking back through past recoveries and you look at a place like Arche recovering from the tsunami, community there was literally villages coming together to actually reach agreement amongst themselves about how they wanted their village reconstructed and which how the land was going to be parceled up so that they could build a new school or a, a mosque, et cetera. And community was right down to sort of family units and, and working together. In Christchurch after the earthquakes, um, community was grassroots community organisations trying experimental you know, experimental um, creative responses to activation of, you know, vacant vacant lots where buildings would have to be demolished after the earthquakes and, and getting into that creative space. So far, what we've seen in Australia is the community sector has been really important. Um, it's been the community sector. You know, it's been migrant organisations helping, for example, with outreach to, to non-English speaking uh, migrant communities around the pandemic, or it's been... Um, uh, service delivery organisations involved in in service delivery during the pandemic, and I, I think all of those groups have got a role to play. And I think as we as we think through recovery, being open to a range of different contributions from a range of people, and not just 
relying on a, a top-down government-driven bureaucratic um, approach to recovery. We need to be empowering different groups within our communities to be part of the solution, to try different things, um, and not all of which will succeed, but that's okay too. And we'll, you know, we'll stop doing the things that don't work and we'll, we'll keep investing in and scaling up those that do. And I think the contributions that a range of people and range of groups can make is is immense. And that was the approach that was adopted during, you know, during the, the New Deal after the Great Depression. Um, it was that sort of experimental and iterative approach involving lots of different perspectives. And that I think there's something for us to learn from that. Andrew, one thing I think it's important to talk about just from your perspective as Andrew, um, not as anyone else, but um, governments never played a bigger role in our personal lives, um, just the ability mm-hmm. to sort of tell us what we can and can't do, um, often kind of really treading a fine line between what are our inherent human rights or should be our inherent human rights and and what's prescribed by the state that are the limits of those rights. I mean, it makes me sort of wonder, you know, what will our relationship be with government sort of after this pandemic if there is a significant after period? Um, and in the recovery, you know, I think um, we were seeing previously the trust in government and institutions was very low and has been low for a number of years. I think um, people are now very much in the passenger seat and just kind of very compliant in Victoria and just sort of towing the line. Um how will we kind of come to a reckoning about what are the limits of government to kind of tell us what we can and can't do in our personal lives and where do our human rights kind of start and end? Yeah, it's interesting. For for quite some time before the pandemic, trust in government was declining, had been declining for, for decades. And during the pandemic itself, it was interesting that trust in government actually increased for a period of time there. And what we've seen during the crisis is appropriately so. It's been a, a fairly much a, a command and control approach to crisis response. It's what you need in a crisis. You need you know, edicts and instructions, and it's almost that almost a militaristic response to top down imposition. You know, top down direction. But as we come out of the crisis and think about our recovery, the government and public sector more broadly is going to have to switch switch approach. It's not. It's going to have to give up on command and control and move to a much more of a collaborative governance model, working in partnership between tiers of government, partnership with the community sector. It's going to have to involve empowering others to initiate and drive things. And that's going to require a whole different skill set of government and it's going to require us to adopt a whole different relationship with government, not as... Um, passive recipients of government direction, but uh, fundamentally as democratic participants in government. And I think uh, it, it, it needs we need we're going to need to see a democratic resurgence. I think after the pandemic, and I want to I really think that a, that democratic resurgence has got to be one of the key elements of our recovery process. Yeah, great point. Um, there, there are a lot of naysayers out there who are saying that this COVID-19 outbreak or pandemic is just the first of many global pandemics that we're we're likely to see. Maybe it's the era of pandemics is now upon us. What's your view on that? Is this sort of, I mean, obviously there's the different variants of COVID that we'll have to deal with, but is this going to be like an era of pandemics that we're kind of, is the new societal threat or is this kind of a couple of year phenomenon? Um, Yeah, I I talk with uh, Professor Peter Doherty for for the book and, and is a Nobel laureate and one of the great experts on on um, you know, inf- infectious diseases and I think it's clear that there, there will be future pandemics 
Um, there's always been pandemics. There's emerging infectious diseases almost every year. We see a new one. Not all of them be, become pandemics, though. There will be future pandemics. But beyond that, Mike, there'll be future crises, um, particularly given climate change. We'll see more frequent, more severe natural disasters, bushfire, flood, cyclone, um, you know, a heat wave. All of those things will um, are going to become more frequent and severe. So we're going to have to get better at planning and responding for pandemic, but we're also going to have to get better at planning and responding to crises more generally. Uh, and so crisis response and recovery is, is a skill set that all of us collectively are going to have to get really good at, I think. And there'll be lots to learn from this pandemic. You know? And one of the things I think will be absolutely imperative is that we have a Royal Commission or some such to take the time to actually ensure that we don't lose the learnings of this pandemic. Not about finger pointing, but it's actually about capturing the insights that we that we that we gained during the pandemic, so that we can actually become um, stronger and more resilient as a result, and ensure that we put in place protocols and systems and uh, and other responses, so that we're better next time around. <laughs> Just as we did after the two thousand and nine Black Saturday bushfires, um, we did something similar, and I think it, it'll be a matter of time before we do that here too. If you had to pick sort of a couple of the the key lessons that individuals can take away from recovery um, to sort of guide them on, on the right path or or the enlightened path um, in how they view coming out of the pandemic, what would those top couple of lessons be? The first one uh, is optimism. There is absolutely good reason to think that we can have a better, brighter future after this pandemic. Uh, there are no shortage of examples of recoveries from crises in which cities, nations, or places emerge from the pandemic in the years after or decades after to become, you know, much, much better than they were beforehand. So that's absolutely uh, a realistic probability, you know, for us as well. So I think we should feel optimistic about that. The other lesson I think that I would want to, urge everyone to take away is is now is the time to lift our ambitions to think big uh, about what what we as a nation can become i think the opportunity to shape our direction is there everything we took for granted before the pandemic um has been blown away whether it be the economic settings you know in, in terms of um economic stimulus or whether it be um our approach to the role of government, everything that we took for granted is 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 up for grabs and we can reset now. So let's start having debates about um, what we want to become as a nation. I think this is absolutely the time and I would encourage everyone to start participating in that debate. Fantastic. What a great way to wrap up. How can people find your book and where can they collect a copy? And also how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your fantastic work? Sure. So the book's called Recovery, How We Can Create a Better, Brighter Future After a Crisis. And it's available in all bookshops, although many bookshops are um, currently closed due to the lockdown. But um, many of the independent bookshops um, throughout throughout the country are doing uh, click and collect or, or free local delivery. So I'd encourage you to order, order the book with one of your local independent bookshops. You can find me on Twitter at Andrew Weir, that's W-E-A-R or on Instagram at WeAreAndrew. Um, uh, yeah, so I'd look, love to hear from people. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me again. Hang on for a minute and let's have a little debrief.
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 